Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we'll go through some of the things you will need to consider when choosing an index fund. Now, for the purposes of this episode, when I say index fund, I mean either an ETF, which is an exchange traded fund, or an index fund in the form of a managed fund that tracks an index. I've covered the differences between the two types in previous episodes, but in this episode, we will focus on how to go about choosing one. Let's get started. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, listeners to this podcast will also know my philosophy on investing. I love keeping things simple. I just pick an index fund, then I go for gold. I tend not to complicate matters too much. I also recognize this may be boring for some people who want a bit of excitement in their life and that's completely fine. It's completely fine to dabble in some speculative assets every now and again, but I prefer to just stick to the mainstream of investing. I don't buy anything speculative. Now we'll cover the step-by-step process of picking out an index fund for you. Now we won't be discussing specific index funds because it's impossible to just focus on one because there are so many factors and it's those factors I want to explore today and also I don't want ASIC on my back. So what are index funds and how do they work? To explain this, I'm going to use my usual Coles shopping analogy. When we go shopping, we don't just buy one product and walk out. We buy a bit of fruit, a bit of vegetables, some yogurt, some ice cream, some bread, some pasta, some cereal, some spices, etc., etc. Then we put it all in the shopping trolley, so we diversify our diet. Those products represent companies, and the aisles in Coles represent geographical locations, say Australia, Europe, North America, Asia. Within those sections, the pasta section, for example, might have five different brands of pasta or more. They may represent sectors or themes. And our shopping trolley represents the index. It has a variety of products that we've chosen, and for the purposes of investing, we call them brands or businesses. Then we walk out of Coles and we pay for it in one big bill. And now we own a variety of products or businesses. And that's exactly what an index is. It's a collection of companies that are represented in the index. Now, there's a slight difference here. And that is when we go to Coles, we pick and choose what we want to buy. But in an index, it's all diversified already ready. And we just have to pick the index. So when you buy an index fund, it's a bit like shopping at Coles. Except instead of Coles, we call it the ASX, the New York Stock Exchange, or the UK Stock Exchange, or the Indian Stock Exchange. It doesn't matter. Those exchanges are where the businesses are listed. In effect, those exchanges are like shopping centers. It's mostly done electronically, so by buying an index fund, we are able to gain exposure to a wide variety of businesses, either in Australia, around the world, 
or particular sectors of the world or themes of investments. So next time you shop at Coles or Woolies, it's literally that simple. Compare this to the active investing, where you need to go shopping and buy maybe just one product or two or three products at one time. Now, I do a bit of active shopping sometimes. I go and check the chocolate aisle and see if there's any specials and nab that Cadbury's hazelnut chocolate bar when it's on special. This is a bit like browsing the stock market, analysing companies and waiting for a bargain to show up and buying a particular company. You could do that too. A lot of people may choose to do their majority weekly shopping, but also make short trips every now and again to get some bargains if they wish. So the majority of the shopping analogy is buying the index. The occasional short trips to buy that one product might be your speculative active investing process. Now, although I do active shopping and occasionally go and look for that Cadbury's hazelnut chocolate bar, I don't do this in my investing. So what's the data on index funds? Is it a good strategy over the long term? Now, when I speak to people about the stock market, I get a lot of things like, it's risky, I don't trust it, it's complicated, when do I sell, how do you buy the best companies around? That's not the right way to think about it. We don't constantly think about it like this when we go shopping. We do our routine shopping, we keep it simple, we buy the usual brands we like and trust and check the price and then walk out. It's part of our lives. And that's what I want investing to be in my life. I want investing to be part of my life just as going out and doing some shopping. You need to incorporate investing as part of your life as well. Now to the stats. Fund managers often quote their performance as being the best. And there's key words like market returns was X percent, but we got Y percent. We're Y is greater than X. The stats are very clear. People who just buy broad market indices over 10 plus years will beat most of the active market managers and fund managers out there. Now, let's look at the stats from around the world, and this is directly from Spiva. In the US, 96.4% of active funds underperformed the S&P 500, which is their benchmark index. In Canada, 82.29% underperformed their benchmark, which is the S&P TSX Composite Index. In Mexico, 77.5% of active fund managers underperformed their benchmark, which is SPB WIRT index. In Brazil, 88.49% of active fund managers underperform the S&P Brazil BMI index. In Europe, 87.81% underperform the European benchmark S&P Europe 350. Now, remember, Europe has many markets and it's just too difficult to compare all of them together. The MENA, M-E-N-A, Middle East and North Africa markets, 91.43% of active fund managers underperformed their benchmark, which is the S&P Pan-Arab Composite. In South Africa, 72.46% underperformed their benchmark, which is S&P South Africa DSW capped. In India, 67.36% of active fund managers underperformed their benchmark, which is the S&P BSE 100. And in Japan, even Japan, which has been pretty stagnant since the 1980s, 86.18% of active fund managers underperformed their benchmark, which is the S&P 150. And back home in Australia, 82.93% of active fund managers underperformed our benchmark, which is the S&P ASX 200. The lesson here is when someone says they can consistently beat the benchmark, ask them their stats over 10 years and see what they show you. Do not trust their word. Words are just that. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to beat the market. People like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Peter Lynch have done it all the time, and they're probably still doing it. But we're average listeners and we're average investors. We've got other careers to do. We're not professional investors. 
This podcast channel is not about professional trading or investing. So although it's not impossible to beat the market over the long term, people have done it. That's not what this channel is all about. And that's certainly not what this episode is all about. So what is your investment thesis? When you choose to make any investments, particularly in index funds, you need to have a goal in mind, not like an overall financial plan. That's a different strategy. I've discussed that particular strategy or having a financial plan in detail in one of my previous episodes. An investment thesis is basically a goal for your investments. So as part of your goal, you need to make up your mind about is this money set for life and never to be touched ever again? Or are you picking an index fund to invest, let's say, over the next five or 10 years time? My philosophy on this is investing is mostly behavioral. So I do not touch any of my index fund investments during my working life, but will be using it to live off dividends in my retirement. So having a plan and having a goal is vitally important. Otherwise, you'll end up picking the wrong index fund for the wrong purpose. Step one, focus on the style of investment, ETFs versus index funds or managed funds. This is a really common question that I get all the time. Now, for the purposes of this episode, when I say index funds, I mean either managed funds that track an indice or an ETF. This is something to understand. They're not the same thing, even though they are referred to as index funds. Their function, however, is similar or the same. They both track the index and they replicate the performance of the index. So let's use an example to highlight this concept. Australia's benchmark index is S&P ASX 200. Now, you could approach a particular company, let's say Company X, who have an ETF which tracks the S&P ASX 200 index. Or they may have a managed fund, which also tracks the S&P ASX 200. Which one do you choose? This depends on your style of investment. If you want to buy and sell index funds multiple times per day, or be able to trade it like a stock, then you may wish to choose the ETF version. These are structured similar to shares. You log into your brokerage, then pick the ETF and buy it just like any other share. Now, there are two costs associated with this sort of transaction. Cost one is the ETF has an expense ratio or fund management fee, which is usually very low and is usually in a yearly format. Cost two is the transaction of buying the ETF, and this depends on the broker. Broker A may charge $10 per transaction, Broker B may charge $20 per transaction, and it depends on what sort of broker you use. For example, Comsec is a broker, so is Selfwealth, so is Stake, and so is Perla. You'll need to do your own research on this to see which broker is best for you. Some of them are full-size brokers. Some of them are partial brokers. Some of them are online brokers. Now, I've done an episode on brokers in the past and discussed it in meticulous step-by-step approach on selecting a broker and some of the pros and cons. So go back and listen to that episode if you're interested. Or instead of buying an ETF version, you may choose to just buy the managed funds version. There's usually only one cost, and that cost is the yearly management fee for the fund. Now, yes, there's buy-sell spreads and all that sort of stuff, but ETFs have these too, and that's just a cost to buying ETFs or index funds. So I wouldn't be too stressed about it. I've discussed buy-sell spreads in one of my earlier episodes if you wish to learn about that concept as well. Now, when you buy a managed fund which tracks an index, you don't need a middleman. You don't need a broker. It turns out, if you're the type who wants to invest regularly, but perhaps fortnightly or monthly, the cost of an ETF works out cheaper over the long term. And there is a saying in investment, brokerage is just once, but management fees are forever. The general rule of thumb when using a brokerage service is you keep your brokerage cost at 1% or less than your parcel. 
What this means is, if you're buying a parcel of ETF at $1,000, then you want to keep the brokerage less than 10 bucks. If you're paying more than 1% for your brokerage of your entire parcel, then maybe you're just paying too much. So, choosing your style of investment is really important to decide first. Personally, I invest around 200 or even 300 times per year, sometimes because I take 20% of my after-tax income or more and plough it straight into index funds. I get paid many, many times in a week, and sometimes with my various sources of income, so it's just easier for me to just buy the managed fund version. Otherwise, I'd have to pay a lot in brokerage fees. So if I did that through an ETF, my brokerage cost alone may be tens of thousands of dollars per year, which is significant. So I tend to stick to my managed funds, so I'm not thinking about brokerage costs at all. It's a psychological thing for me. But to be honest, you can dwell on this a little bit, but don't obsess over it over time. The returns on investing zero money is still zero. Step two is, are you a broad market investor or a narrow market investor? Are you a large cap investor or a small cap investor? Now, this is an important step to decide on. Once you decide an ETF version or managed fund version, you need to work out, okay, are you going to choose a very broad market index fund or stick to something more geographically isolated? You may wish to stick to the large company indices or focus on emerging markets or focus on smaller cap indices. This is a bit like walking into Coles and not really buying a bit of everything, which is similar to broad market index investing, which is what the stats say that I discussed about when I talked about the active fund managers underperforming the indices through SPIVA. But rather, you're buying just something from one or two aisles and walking out. You may wish to stick to a particular sector like ESG investing, which is all the rage now, or factor investing, or even artificial intelligence ETFs. This is entirely up to you. My philosophy on this is I prefer broad market index funds because I want to diversify my investments. And diversification, in my view, is the only free lunch in investing. I want to make sure I'm with the whole economy. I prefer to invest in markets I'm familiar with. Now, you may wish to just buy an index fund which tracks the entire world. Perhaps it has a bit of Australia, North America, Asia, emerging markets, European markets. And within those, you may wish to have some allocations only in the stock market or within the bond market or within the cash market, whatever it is. But you need to focus on this decision. And once you decide, then stick to the plan. Also, you may wish to have two or three ETFs or index funds rather than just one. It's up to you. Step three is, are you a local investor or an international investor? Sticking to the theme of what we just discussed, you can decide to invest only in the local markets or choose to invest in other markets around the world or just stick to a global index fund that tracks the entire world. That's up to you. At this stage, I wish to introduce you to the concept of circle of competence, which Warren Buffett famously talks about. What is it? What is circle of competence? If you Google this, you find a nice image which has two circles. The inner circle, which is what a person knows and it matches their skills and knowledge set. The outer circle, which is what they think they know and it doesn't really match their skills and knowledge. When doing anything in life, try and stick to what you know and master it. This is no different to investments. Stick to things you know. If you know the Oz market, then stick to it. If you know the Indian markets, then stick to it. If you know the North American markets, then stick to that. Now, if you want to learn about other sectors or other markets, you might want to expand your knowledge before you invest in those markets. Maybe you should learn about other markets. That's okay. So you can expand your circle of competence. You don't have to stick to them all the time. You can expand them, but make sure you have a process of expanding that. 
Let's use an example to highlight this principle. And I'm going to highlight this principle in a very medical way. So if you're non-medical, you may find this really interesting. And if you're medical, I bet you this you can relate to. Amy is a surgical registrar who's on call at a regional hospital. She's a senior registrar who's able to perform major operations and get a start before her consultant arrives. Upon her on call, she receives a trauma call. The situation is a 23-year-old male who's been stabbed multiple times on the chest and abdomen. Amy arrives into the trauma call and makes an assessment with the help of their team members, which usually comprises of the senior ED doctor or FASM and many nurses and other doctors helping out. The patient is clinically stable, alert, conscious and has normal vitals. Upon Amy's assessment and review of some of her investigations, it is noted the patient has a left-sided pneumothorax, so she inserts a chest tube to alleviate that problem. Systematically, Amy breaks down the patient's injuries. And the patient's injuries are left-sided pneumothorax, multiple superficial stab wounds to the abdomen, front of the abdomen with one deep wound, and she also notices a swollen right ankle. The patient states he tripped and fell while trying to run away from the attacker. Now, at this stage, the patient likely needs what's called a CT pan scan, which is a trauma series, if hemodynamically stable, or exploratory surgery to see if his abdomen wounds have penetrated what's called the peritoneum. Is Amy competent to take him to theatre and get a consultant to come in to help her? She's done trauma laparotomies all the time, so she's pretty routine procedure for her. So she books it on ETBS, the emergency theatre booking system, and off she goes. The x-ray for the right ankle shows a Weber's B fracture. Now, can Amy operate on that too while she's in theatre? No. Her circle of competence and training is abdominal surgery and trauma surgery pertaining to visceral organs. The right ankle is orthopaedics. So she places a call to the on-call orthopaedic registrar and explains, ED will backslab the ankle, but looks like you may need to get involved at some stage. But the more pressing situation right now is the stab wounds. So I'm going to take this bloke to theatre tonight. Notice in this case, I've highlighted a medical example, and we call this the scope of practice, similar to calling it circle of competence. It's the same philosophy in investing. If you don't understand something, either seek out to understand it or don't invest in it. The last thing Amy would want to do here is operate on that ankle and get an APRA registration suspended for practicing outside of her scope of practice or circle of competence. You can use a non-health example, lawyers who do wills and estate planning, they don't practice criminal law. Mechanics who specialise in EVs, they may not do ice cars. Brake experts don't repair tyres. Investing is no different. Now, right about then, the plastics registrar calls and says, we need the theatre because I've just seen a patient with an amputated thumb and they're a right-hand dominant carpenter, so our case is more important. Then, just outside theatre, Amy hears the obstetrics registrar rushing in because in Bird Suite, there's a potential fetal distress, so there may be a code green, which basically means it's game time. Meanwhile, it's 1am in the morning, and the medical registrar has been at it for five hours already and has about nine more referrals to see an emergency, and overhears another doctor saying, yep, I've got one more for you, MedReg. As the admissions registrar and as the patient has abdominal pain, the MedReg wants to refer them to you, Amy as she's on take for referrals for surgery. By this stage, Amy has well and truly left the department in prep for theatre. Meanwhile, the ED is bustling and the senior ED doctor is looking at their waiting room and wondering why a patient who's had a rash for two weeks has decided to attend the emergency department at 1am in the morning and has now waited for six hours and has no hope in hell to see the doctor until the morning. 
Right at that moment, there's another trauma call about a patient expect high-speed MVA and hemodynamic compromise, and the ambulance paramedics have rung that through as well. The ED nurse in charge has had a rough shift. It's been busy, bed-blocked and can't mobilise patients to the ward or discharge them. She calls an urgent huddle to see what can be done to manage the situation. But the problem then is, the morning in charge nurse, unfortunately, has just called in sick because she has COVID and she can't work. Right at that stage, the accredited dermatology registrar is fast asleep, cosy in their bed, without a care in the world. And of course, our GP specialists are still awake in the middle of the night checking their patients' results, which is all unpaid. Now, all of this kind of sounds like a joke, but for those healthcare workers listening in right now, a lot of this is true and strangely funny. Step four is, how do you protect your downside risk? Do you want some bonds in your portfolio or other so-called defensive assets? When you select an index fund, you can select ones just in the stock market or select ones in the bond market or cash market or property market. And you can just select one which has a bit of everything. I speak to a lot of people and they ask me two questions. How do I make more money? How do I invest? Although valid questions they are, I always think about protecting your downside. Take stock of what you have around you. And I think as part of my investment philosophy and strategy, protecting our downside is really important, as important as seeking the upside. So you need to do a risk profile analysis of your situation and see if you want some defensive assets in your portfolio. Defensive assets are things like bonds or cash allocations to your portfolio. Personally, I have these in my super, but not outside of my super. And I'm still relatively young and I don't mind risking a bit more. So to do your risk profile, it's a very individual thing. And this is where a financial planner or advisor may be able to help you with. It depends on these things and possibly more. Your age, your dependence, your life stage, your liabilities, assets, income, and peace of mind factor. Now at this stage, we'll take a short break. And after the break, we'll continue on with some more steps to think about on how to go about selecting your index fund. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue on and some of the other steps you may want to consider in choosing your index fund. Step five is, how do you intend to buy your index fund? Now, 
Fund selection. Do you want to buy it all from the same fund manager or buy from a broker if it's an ETF or diversify that as well? This episode is a bit beyond that scope of things like custodial models for brokers versus HIN model. Now, I've discussed this concept in detail in the How to Choose Your Broker episode done in 2022. What about convenience? How much do you value that? Do you want an online-only broker or something which is a bit more hands-on? What about trading costs? Now, we know that fees compound as well, so they're a killer. It's really important to find out your fees. The number of people I speak with who don't know their investment advisory fees or super fees or broker fees is absolutely staggering. Fees are your money. It's a definition of opportunity cost. You wouldn't just throw $100 bills into the bin, would you? That's kind of what fees are, except you're giving it all away. What about the degree of automation? I love automation. I've done an episode on this. I think automation is really important when it comes to personal finances and investing. I get it that some people prefer to manually invest, but I think it's a bit of a risk if you do that. I automate most aspects of my investing life. Even my dividends are reinvested automatically. Now, some funds don't offer automation. Some brokers also don't offer automation. So that's a bit of a bearing on how you position your index fund portfolio. Step six is you've got to monitor the fund. Once you buy your index fund, you need to keep an eye on it, but not like every day. I check on my portfolio maybe every quarter, mainly because that's when my dividends come through and I like looking at them. And I make sure the dividends that hit the account are immediately reinvested. It gives me a psychological boost. But in terms of your portfolio check, I may only do this six to 12 monthly. And to be honest, there's very little changes I make. Is your index fund doing its job? And this comes back to the goals we've set up. Usually when you check performance, they show it against the benchmark index. So make sure you check it and learn about it. Check the fees. Do they accurately deduct the fees? Do they check it and make sure it's all accounted for? Do they publish their performance after fees, after taxes or before fees and before taxes? All of that matters. Don't be too obsessive about checking the portfolio too much. We're in it for the long term, remember. So Jack Bogle often says this, Keep investing, don't check it, and then eventually open it and be prepared to sit down because it's going to be worth much more than what you invested in. Step eight, think about the risks. What are the pitfalls of investing in index funds? Index investing is a form of passive investing. It's not a perfect strategy. Although many people say it is, I acknowledge it's not perfect because we discuss the risks. Let's look at the benefits before we do that. The benefits are it's an optimistic outlook in life. Most passive investors believe over the long term, our world will get better. Businesses will solve problems and innovate. And because essentially, if you look at the last 200 years, that's what's happened. Humans are innovators. So why would it be any different in the future? The fees are also much lower than active trading or investment strategies. And in Australia, fee reductions have happened more and more over time. It just so happened with companies like BetaShares and BlackRock, even as I prepare for this episode. Vanguard is lagging a bit behind, but also has a long tradition of lowering their fees and have low fees. The other advantage is diversification. An index fund passive investing strategy allows for instant diversification and it's relatively easy to invest globally using just a few index funds. And lastly, risk reduction. The risks are reduced because it's spread over vast diversity of companies, especially if you choose to invest in broad market index funds. Now to the pitfalls. Number one is you live by the benchmark, you die by the benchmark. You're not trying to beat the market. You're trying to match the market returns less the fees and taxes. So it's a bit boring, but it kind of works and has worked in the past 50 years or so, but it's unexciting. And I get a lot of criticism for this. Is this a pitfall? Maybe, maybe not, but I've included it as a pitfall. 
Number two is lack of flexibility. The index fund moves in lockstep with the index. So let's say if the fund manager foresees a recession or depression and wants to reposition their portfolio and assets in a specific way to minimize the risk of losses, they can't. But I see this as an opportunity. When you go into Coles and everything is on sale, do you go back home and come back another day when the prices have increased? You'd be mad if you did that. Number three is there is no unicorn. You don't get the rush of activity trading and active trading and trying to find the unicorn in the stock market. And that is entirely dependent on your philosophy and how much time you have for investments. And number four is market efficiency suffers. Now, this is a theoretical risk. Basically, what some pundits who may be active investors, so there's a bit of conflict of interest to saying is, if a lot of people just passively invest like an index fund, then overall returns may be lower over the long term. Don't get me wrong, we still make money, but it won't be the usual 10 or 12% we made in the last 100 years. Now, that may be true. When I forecast my returns into the future, I tend to forecast for about 7%. And my overall portfolio, since I started investing, has been around 8 to 9%, and that's been about 12 plus years. So what about this index fund bubble, which everyone keeps talking about, made famous by Michael Burry, who talks about it a lot? Basically, what people are worried about is, if everyone just simply puts money into a passively managed index fund, then the market becomes more and more skewed, and potential risk being inefficient, and we miss out on the lesser valued companies, and therefore may miss out on the total gains. Now let's look at this concept in a bit more detail. Essentially, there are significant inflows into passive investing and index funds when compared to active funds. In 2019 alone, 204 billion US dollars left active funds and 163 of that entered passive funds. And this trend continues today. The concern is also some of the largest index funds out there like SPDR and S&P 500 and iShares Core S&P 500 and VTI, which is a Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, Vanguard Top 500 Companies Index Fund or iShares, Russell 1000 Index. There's plenty out there. They all own the same five stocks like Apple, Tesla, Alphabet, Amazon and Facebook. This potentially overexposes people to these companies because most index funds are market cap weighted. Just because you invest in the ASX 300 index fund doesn't mean all of your money is equally spread between the 300 companies. So it depends on how big each company is within that index fund and your money is allocated according to this fact. The other problem they see is when you invest in an index fund, your money is allocated according to the index allocation. There is no control over how it's allocated. This is what they get worried about because money just blindly being invested into companies just because those companies are in the index. This means more and more money gets into these index funds, which potentially bloats their values. But people don't consider the underlying fundamentals of the companies before they invest. They just invest because it's included in the index. And this potentially overvalues those index funds and it becomes more and more bloated and therefore the risk is a bubble. Lastly, the other concern is index investing takes out the due diligence. For example, admittedly, I actually, despite owning indexes, don't know exactly what is in the ASX 300 index fund, which is one of my investments. Now, I know the major companies that's included, but I don't know all of the companies that's included. And technically, I haven't done my fundamental and technical analysis of those companies either. So that's a fair point. And let's face it, even though index investing is deemed a form of passive investing strategy, some people say to choose an index, which is entirely the premise of this episode, has a series of active decision-making steps. 
where you go about to invest, which countries, which sectors, and it's truly not passive then, is it? Fair point. And what's my view on all of this? I think there's a bit of a bubble brewing, but not in the broad market funds. I think the real risk is those thematic and sector-based ETFs and index funds. I mean, you can invest in an index fund which comprises of the Bitcoin mining companies. That's bullshit. I don't buy sector or thematic ETFs because it's too risky. Today, artificial intelligence is massive. Tomorrow, it may die out. I keep it very simple. I keep it very broad market because I want the piece of the entire economy, not just sectors or themes. If I drive a car, eat food, shop at Coles or use utilities and banks, guess what? That's my circle of competence and I'm sticking to it. Now, that's about it for this episode on how to choose an index fund. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or better yet, leave a five-star review and rating on all of the platforms, that's even better, and please leave a positive review. On that note, here's a review from Pinky2626 for Apple Podcast who writes, my preschooler calls him the money man. This podcast has been the soundtrack to my work commute all year long, and I thoroughly enjoy listening each week. Even my four-year-old is a keen follower as it helps mummy make more money for me. Thank you. That's a wonderful review and shout out to your preschooler and great that mummy makes more money for you. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these episodes and I put a lot of thought and effort in each episode, so please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga and this is My Millennium Money Professional and until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.